0: the service and find out maybe a little bit more about where they'll be serving the next weeks and how you might be able to support and care for them. When Tony Campolo was a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania, he led several of his students into a personal relationship with Christ. And one of the young men who had committed, one of the young men who committed his life to Christ had grown up in a completely secular home. And he had a wonderful first encounter with Christ that literally changed his life dramatically. He was radically transformed. God got a hold of him and made a difference that many uh, were surprised at the transformation that had happened. Well, one day as this young man and Tony were walking across the school campus, another man from the universe, from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship came up to Dr. Campolo and said, Dr., we're looking forward to hearing you speak at our gathering tonight. It starts at 7. Please don't be late. Well, with that, the other young man who had just become a Christian asked him and said, "Uh, can I come too? And the intervarsity young man asked him, well, are you a Christian? And this new Christian gave an unusual response. He says, only you can answer that. See, many of us as Christians uh, believe that our relationship with Jesus is something that's between us and God, something that we know, and we can even be offended or even wondered a person who is brash enough, brash enough to ask us whether our commitment, whether we are committed to Christ, and what that commitment looks like. But in reality, if you and I are really followers of Jesus, those around us ought to be easily able to identify that. There should be no doubt by how we live that we have a connection with Jesus Christ that is not only a mental understanding of who Christ is, not only an acceptance of who he is, but it also should be readily seen with how we live. This morning we want to focus on two questions. The first question is, how evident should my relationship with Christ be to those who know me, to those who observe my life? And the second question is, is what does a saving faith in Christ look like? If you and I are fully committed to Jesus, what are the components, what are the things that should be immediately obvious? Now get to, to get to the answer of these two questions, if you have your Bibles, open them to James chapter 2. We're looking at verses 14 to 26, finalizing the second chapter of James. And if you find the sermon outline helpful, there is one for you in our worship folder. Now I would encourage you also each week to bring your Bibles, a Bible that you use to kind of grow and to have, you know, to, that God feeds you with every, every day, because I think that our Bibles need to be tools that we use, tools that we use, tools where we underline, tools where we are so familiar with it. That when we come to God's Word that we are energized and we are enlightened concerning what God has to say. James chapter 2, let me read beginning with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by the work, by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now from this passage, James identifies two different distinct types of faith. First he talks about a false faith, and then he talks about what does genuine faith look at. Number one, two truths, two things we need to know about what a false faith is. Number one, dead faith, false faith does not save us from hell. In verse 17, James describes a faith that is not accompanied by good works. Uh, and he describes it by saying if, <clears throat> if it is not obvious if there are not works associated with what we believe then we have a dead a fake faith. In other words this dead faith, this false faith has no power, no ability to change and no ability to save us from hell. It was a gravestone that had these words inscripted on it. Here lies an atheist all dressed up with no place to go. Now we know that's not true and C.S. Lewis ref- referenced that. When he heard of that, he said the person that was buried beneath that, if they were indeed an atheist, they now know that that is not true because there is a hell Verse 14 says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the hypothetical answer to that question is no. A faith that is not validated by godly works cannot save anyone. Now what does validate mean? Validate means to make to give evidence that what, they're, what is happening is true. To validate means to affirm the truth of, to affirm the validity of. And one of the reasons I believe that people do not take a relationship with God more seriously is they're unaware of the consequences of not having one. Because the reality of hell has been minimized. We don't talk about hell. There are a few sermons preached on hell. But the reality that hell is real is not mentioned. Many years ago, Charles Spurgeon wrote these words, and words that describe for us what hell looks like. He says, there is a real fire in hell as truly as you have a real body a fire exactly like the one that we have on this earth, except this, it will not consume you, though it will torture you. You have seen asbestos lying amid red hot coals, but not consumed. So your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed. With your nerves laid raw by searing flame, yet never desensitized for all its raging fury and the acrid smoke of the sulfurous flame searing your lungs and choking your breath, you will cry out for the mercy of death but it shall never, no, never come. That quote by Spurgeon can even be hard to listen to, can it? In graphic but realistic terms, Spurgeon lays out the reality of hell in a way that can offend us. Something about hell, something sometimes we would rather not know than hear the reality of the truth. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul gives these words about heaven. He says no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What he is saying, we cannot imagine the amazingness of heaven. And what was Spurgeon saying? Spurgeon was saying we cannot imagine how horrible hell is. And I would suggest that if we get a more clear picture of hell, that we might be a little more invigorated to make sure first of all that our faith is genuine. And second of all, we might be a little more ambitious in praying for those that we know if they do not make a decision for Christ, we'll go there. See, the danger of a false faith, a faith that believes but never chooses, is the danger of what will be experienced because of that commitment not being made. Or the false assumption that hell is not as bad as the Bible declares it to be. A false or a dead faith cannot save us from the consequences of sin, A second, number two, a false faith does not produce God-honoring action or transformation. Verses 15 and 16 say, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Again, a rhetorical question saying, meaning it's not, doesn't do much good. These verses describe a heart that has not been softened, a mind that has not been renewed, and a life that has not experienced the transformation that comes into us when Christ is present. A dead or false faith cannot speak of compassion, cannot know and talk about the priority of having God transform us. This false hope has no ability to bring about the real change that every one of us needs. And let me suggest this, friends. No matter what age we are, we all need transformation. Until the day we walk into heaven, we have things in our life that God needs to transform, that He is willing to transform, that He wants to transform. If we are willing to say, God, I surrender myself to You. Let me add this, the reason that false faith or dead faith cannot save us from hell or cannot change our lives is because false faith is something that we try to generate within ourselves. How effective have you been, have I been, to have significant change in the areas of my life that desperately need it. We are, we are imperfect, so we cannot forgive our own sin, and even if we would be able to raise ourselves from the dead, and we, we still have limited goodness. So we are unable to genuinely change ourselves regardless of how much we study, discipline or sell ourselves, or meditate. Friends, this is it. It is only when we commit our lives to Jesus that we are saved from hell, and that we are saved from ourselves. It is Christ in us that transforms us, that strengthens us, that renews and energizes us, that saves us, that conforms us to his image, that prepares us for each challenge and protects us from harm. It is Christ who is our what? Our hope of glory, our hope of transformation. It is Christ alone that can enter into our lives, and with the power of the resurrection, that same power, using it to make us different every day than we were the day before. Psalms 118.14 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become what? My salvation. See, the difference between a false faith and an alive faith is simply with this. In one word, it is Jesus. In a false faith, there is no Jesus. and In an alive faith, Christ is in us. And when we have faith in Christ, it is a catalyst, friends. It has a catalytic impact, and we cannot stay the same. So the next question is this, what happens when we have a genuine faith in Jesus? What can we expect when Christ becomes a focal point of all we do, say, have, and are? On your outline next, six truths about what a genuine faith looks like. Number one, a genuine faith saves me from hell. Verse 23 says, "In the Scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. These verses say, This verse says two things about Abraham. First it says that Abraham believed God. Abraham believed. He, he believed that when God told him that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, he believed him. When Abraham also believed that God would fulfill his promise through Isaac. And of course in this passage it said he was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, believing that God would raise him from the dead and that the promise God made to him 30 years previous would come to fruition. Second, it says this, that his belief was counted as righteousness. It was reckoned, it was given to Abraham as righteousness, a righteousness before God that provides Abraham freedom from hell and the promise of heaven. The two conditions of a genuine faith are that we believe in God, who He is and what He does, and that the second is that the faith we receive from God changes us. See, the, the, we, we know that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. We also know that that happens, that a real, alive faith with Christ produces good works. It produces action. The Greek word for the word works in verse 14 is ergon. Ergon is like ergonomics, and it means action, that there is something that happens. There is a response that happens in the life of the person who has committed themselves to Christ. The faith that we receive from God is a life-giving faith. It is active. It is alive. It moves us from heaven to hell because when we reach out to God in faith, He enters into us and our faith becomes the pathway of power and blessing. Our faith becomes a pathway that God uses to change us, to make, our, make within our lives evident the fact that Christ is real and He is working in our lives. And friends, if I look at my life and you look at, look at your life and we cannot see a transformation, if we cannot see a transgression into being more like Jesus, we have to stop and say, Lord, what do you want to tell me? What do I need to learn so that you can be more evident within My life? Are there fears? Are there habits? Are there hurts? Are there hang ups? Are there other things that need to be changed within my life? Number two, genuine faith results in transformation and action. Verse 18. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James' response, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In this verse, James gives his response when someone says to him, you have faith and I have work. Now, what is James saying? He is saying that some will say that as long as you have faith, you don't need action. Or if you have action, you don't need faith. In, In other words, God doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to him. It's okay. And James, in his own way, counters this claim by making the point that it is is impossible for anyone to prove that their faith is real apart from how their lives are changed because of what God does in the life of a person who submits himself to him. James is saying that real faith changes us. Real faith transforms us at the very core of our being, and we live and act differently because Jesus is in us. We are to be what? The light of the world. We are to be a city set on a hill. Our actions, our words, our life are to be, are to, it is to be evident. And friends, let me add this. We live in a culture right now that's becoming increasingly godless. There is vileness and there are things happening even between the political parties that, we, that I have not seen in my lifetime. And you and I are called by the name of Christ. We are Christians. We have bore His name. We have received His gift. And we need to become maybe a bit more bold. In fact, I would say a lot more bold to speak the truth in love and to identify that Christ is alive on this world through the lives of His disciples. So that, and friends, this should be something that we ask God, Lord. I'm willing. I am able. Would you use me? Would you give me the courage? Would you give me the words? Would you give me the faith, Lord, to be identified as your child? Throughout this book, James listed some of some of the changes that happens when real faith in Christ grips our heart, and these are some of the things he lists. In chapter one, he lists endurance, perseverance, purity of life obedience to the Scripture, compassion toward the needy. In verse 2, he talks about impartiality and compassion. In verse 3, controlling our words. In verse 4, humility, telling the truth, and patience in verse 5. These are just some of the things that should be transforming within our life as Christ is growing in us. James said that Abraham on his own did not have the faith that he could believe on his own that Isaac would be brought back from the dead if necessary. But he had the faith to believe that God could give him that faith if he believed in Christ. See, friends, when we have a faith, when we take that first step of faith and say, Christ, I believe in you, you know what God does? He grows our faith. He gives us experiences where one after another, our faith becomes greater. But God says, I'm going to take the first step towards you. I'm going to send Jesus on, to, on the cross. He's going to die. He's going to raise again. He is going to live among you. I'm going to take the first step and come to you. As you take the sec- your step and come to me, I will begin in you a transformational walk of faith. Number three, real faith is easily identified. In verse 18, James makes a statement that our faith is seen is validated by how we live. What we do confirms what we believe. See, in your mind, what, what more most basically, what most purely identifies who a person is, what they say or what they do? Someone said that our, our faith is most clearly identified by what we do when no one's looking, when we're alone. That that becomes the core, the very essence of what our faith is. In verses 21 to 26, we have the story of Abraham being willing to offer his son Isaac to God. And then we have the story of Rahab the prostitute being willing to hide the two spies that had come to Jericho to see what the Israelites would need to do to take this city. In Joshua 2, we read that Rahab hid the spies under bundles of flax on her roof. She lied to the king and saved the lives of these two men of God. Now, let me ask you a question. What was it? that led Rahab to take such a risk, to risk her life on something she could not guarantee. She could not guarantee that these men would be merciful to her, that the other leaders of Israel would listen to them and, and, give, and give safety to her and her family. What was it that made her willing to risk everything? Let me read a few verses from Joshua chapter 2 that identifies this story. Just listen along, please, as I read. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, "I know that the Lord has given you land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Gog. Whom you devoted to destruction, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the man said to her, "Our life for yours, even for even to death." If you do not tell of this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She heard, she believed, and she acted. She heard about the God of Israel. She believed that he was God. Listen to verse 21. She says this affirmation of faith. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She had heard that. She had believed what the Israelites had done, and she acted because of her her faith was obvious because she acted her faith was obvious see what God did God gave her words one of the scholars I read talked about the fact that because she was a prostitute many of the men coming to her were merchants and told the story of what was happening with the Israelites how they came this happened out of Egypt and how this happened and how God was with it and as these men told her her stories a faith began to develop within her heart and she believed and see, what God wants to do, He wants a faith to develop in our heart that we, so that we, like a Rahab, when we are given the opportunity, what can we do? We can respond. When God places a need upon our heart, we can respond, we can do, we can act. And what, is the, what did we have already seen from this passage? That this action validates that our faith is not just something we think, it is something we believe in. To the degree that we believe something, friends, to that degree we will act on it. Number four, real faith validates what I believe. Just briefly here, Adam's, Abraham's actions in his willingness to offer Isaac as a sacrifice and Rahab's willingness to do whatever necessary to protect the two spies confirmed, validated that their faith is real. Real faith, friends, real faith does not have to be explained. It simply needs to be expressed. Real faith does not need to be explained. It needs to be expressed. It needs to be lived out. What's the old saying? What you do speaks so loud I don't have to hear what you say or I don't hear what you say. Our faith will probably not be lived out in the same extreme way that Abraham's and Rahab's faith was lived out. But never doubt, never doubt of the impact of your faith, of your faithfulness to God, your obedience to God over the long haul. The story is told of an 11th century king by the name, German king by the name of King Henry III, who having grown tired of court life and the pressure of being a king, applied to the monastery, a monastery to be accepted for a life of contemplation. Well, the religious superior who interviewed him said, you know, your Majesty, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? And that will be hard for you because you are a king. And King Henry responded, I understand the rest of my life from this point forward, I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you concerning my life. And then the religious leader said this, then I will tell you what to do, go back to your throne and serve faithfully where God has placed you. And when King Henry died, a statement was written about him which said, the king learned to rule by being obedient. The result of faithfulness is not necessarily extreme acts of faith, but rather the ongoing faithful obedience of the person that says, Jesus, I will live for you. For my life and for your life, God calls us to a life of faithful obedience, doing each day what he's called us to do. Number five, real faith is tested we're going to go back to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, where we read, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, "'for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, "'and let steadfastness have its full effect, "'that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" We talked about this in the ser- earlier sermon, so I'm not going to say anything else on this other than this. Count on your faith being tested. Testing does two things. It lets you know where you are, and it moves you to where you want to be. Any test lets you do two things. It lets you, gives an idea, gives you an, a, a picture of where you are, and if you pass the test, as you learn from the test, it strengthens you to get to where you to where you want to be. The sixth thing about real faith is that real faith continues to grow, continues to mature. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, We read these words, and as we all, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Friends, again, no matter how long you or I have been uh, been a disciple or a follower of Christ, a real faith continues to grow, continues to mature. How many of you have found that life offers plenty of opportunities for us to grow? It does, doesn't it? Life offers them plenty of challenges, plenty of things that are out of our control for us to be able to say, God, in this, I trust you. See, every time we enter into a a test that challenges us, a test that shakes us, we have two things we can do. One, we can try to control it, or two, we can try to submit it to God. And if you were like me, I learned that my my ability to control, unless it's something simple that God has shown me clearly I need to do, stands in the way of me getting peace. But when I say, God, I trust you. And as I get older, the older I get, the more I realize that the faith we have, if it is not an all-in faith, it will be a, a limited faith. It will be limited in its ability to change us. It will be limited in its ability to give us peace. Every day we say, "God, today I, I will be fully committed to you." Because if you are like me, I am I am on the journey of being fully committed. God is revealing to me areas of my life where I am where I need to conform. And it seems the closer I go, the narrower the road gets as Christ calls me to follow Him. Our God is a gracious His gracious. And never giving us more than we can handle. But there are times when it seems he is more optimistic about what we can overcome than we are. Two biblical truths that we need to know and live out on your outline. Number one, our salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Numerous verses make clear that our salvation, our belief, our guarantee of heaven comes simply through a belief in Christ. Acts sixteen thirty one says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household John 6 3 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever what believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Scripture is clear in saying that because of sin we are spiritually dead unable to save ourselves no amount of works will bring the new life that we need. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Truth number two What we do gives evidence of who we are. Our works are the result of our faith. Our works do not produce faith. Let me say that again. Our works are the result of the faith we have in Christ. Our works do not produce the faith that only Christ can produce. Genuine faith is life-giving and God-directed work-producing. A genuine faith cannot help but lead us to do what the faith within us leads us to do, requires us to do, demands that we do. Here's the biblical reality. What we do because Christ is in our lives is evidence that we are truly his children. When you step out in faith, when you give and risk and act trusting that God is going to show up, you do this because God is in you, and because you wanna know him. We serve God out of gratitude for what he has done. Our loving God blesses us with the opportunity to serve him, to give back to him even a small portion of what he has done for us. What is our response? Four things on your outline. Number one, make sure that my faith is a saving faith. Make sure that my faith is a saving faith. Let me take you back to James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The word shudder denotes a terror that is so severe it makes a person's hair stand on end. Why do the demons shudder? Because they know what's coming for them in hell. Are the demons saved by the faith they have? No, they have an intellectual understanding. They understand what truth, even the demons declared when Jesus was here, you are the Son of God. But a faith that does not not carry with it a submission to the authority and lordship of Christ will lead to a Christless eternity. Our faith, only a faith that surrenders to Jesus, accepts his death as payment for our sin is enough. Only a faith that accepts his lordships and as King Henry did, Vow's obedience, this is a saving faith. So we need to make sure that our faith is a saving faith. Do we have a faith in Christ that is based on belief alone? And then we open our heart up and say, Lord, I am willing. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to become who you want me to become. Number two, response two, is seek God above everything, above anything and everything else. Friends, we are all seeking something. We all have idols that demand our time, our attention, and to be first. Seeking God means to put Christ first in everything. Kyle Kyle Eidelman, in his book Gods at War, says this. God declines to sit atop of an organizational flowchart. He is the organization. He is not interested in being president of the board. He is the board. And life doesn't work until everyone else sitting around the table in the boardroom is fired. He is God and there are no other applicants for that position. There are not partial gods, no honorary gods, no interim gods, no assistants to the regional gods. He is God and there is no other. As Rahab said, for the Lord your God, He is a God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is God." and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion number three we respond in repentance to the Holy Spirit's conviction God has placed within us his Holy Spirit and one of the things the Holy Spirit does it convicts us when we need to make a change in our life so how do we stay close to God we submit to him and when he convicts us we repent no excuses no wait till later we repent we turn from our sin and we begin to live differently We decide, we overcome, we refuse to surrender to what has us. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we say, God, I am yours. Understanding this, that the safest place to be is at the center of God's will. And number four, trust that God will do what he has promised. We trust, we do not fret, we do not worry, we trust. Believing in the goodness of God and the power that he has to do what we cannot. We have to trust God that he is going to grow us. He is going to grow me. I have to trust that God has the power to change my life when I submit. And I also have to believe that in the life of those that I care about that are maybe not where I trust they will be, that I have to say, God, I trust you with those individuals too. I'm going to pray, and God, I'm going to believe that you can do what I cannot in transforming their lives. In Chinese folklore, folklore there is a story of a great man that was so wise that he had to answer to almost any question that people asked him. Well, one day some boys had a perverse plan to pose a question that would be impossible for the man to answer correctly. One of the boys said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to conceal a little bird in my hand, and I'm going to ask the great man, is the bird living or dead? And if the answer is that the bird is dead, I will open my hand and let the bird fly away. If he says that the bird is alive, I will crush the bird And when I I open my hands, he will see that the bird is dead. But whatever he says, I will be able to prove that he is wrong. So the boy went to the master, and he did just what he described to his friends. He said to the master, what do I have in my hand? And the master said, you have a bird. That is right. Now tell me, master, is a bird alive or is it dead? And after reflecting for quite a while, the man looked back at the boy and said this. The answer is literally in your hands. And so it is, friends, for each of us. Each of us hold a choice. What will we do with Jesus? What will we do? Will we ensure that our faith is a genuine faith? And when called, will we serve him? Will we surrender? Will we give in? Friends, we live in a culture, in a society, in a world that is so saturated by so many things that are not directed by our Heavenly Father that for you and I as followers of Christ, we need to saturate ourselves with God's Word. One of the, uh, as a side note, I am a part of an Every Man a Warrior group, and part of this group demands that we start memorizing Scripture. And right now I'm on six verses, and I'm understanding something. I began to memorize verses so that I went to my class on Monday night, I could say them. And I realized that that was only half of the equation that I not only had to memorize them, but I had to meditate on them. And I have found that I have, as I have meditated on these verses that God, in a deeper way, is changing my life. Friends, we are in a culture saturated with ungodliness, and we need to become students of the Word, and we need to say, God, whatever it takes, I will follow you. I will serve you. One of the responsibilities that we have as pastors is to first of all be reminded ourselves of the reality of salvation and the consequences of hell but we also through our lives and through our teaching and preaching need to make clear God's call we need to not let anything distort the purity of this message and the call to follow Jesus and to serve him with a zeal and a self abandonment because friends this is what happens is when we surrender to God we find that he gives us, he provides for us, he blesses us in ways that we cannot comprehend until we come to that point of saying, God, you have all of me. So it is my prayer, it is our prayer, that as we follow God, that the good works that God's Spirit does within us become evident of all, and that as we do that, our God is glorified. Would you stand with me this morning for the benediction? Father, we come to you this morning realizing as much as we can the significance of your love. And as I look around our world and as we look around our world, we see the consequences of people trying to live life without you. We see the many things that have destroyed our society that are destroying our world because there is a vacuum in their lives that only you can fill. And so, Father, we pray that we would fill our hearts with your love, with your care, with your mercy, your grace, that we would believe in our hearts that you are Christ, that we would accept you. And we would free your spirit, that we would be open to transformation, that we would give you the freedom to change us, God, that we might walk with you. This morning as we close, I thank you that you walk ahead of us to guide us, beside us to encourage us, and behind us to protect us. May we go in your name carrying your message of hope and grace and freedom. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Be blessed.